would like to welcome you to the third season of How Not to Start a Damn Brewery, the podcast. In this podcast, I consider it my duty to share the sometimes gory, but always honest truth hidden in the craft beer industry, mainly that it rarely operates like an actual business. Margins are trash, distributors are garbage, and capital expenditures are a raging dumpster fire. But many of the people involved in all these organizations are true badasses. So I will autopsy deceased breweries, retailers, and distributors. I'll talk with wineries, breweries, and distilleries, all in the search for ways to lure out profitability and best practices for you to use in your career to be better tomorrow. In 2020, I released a book about my journey of failure and the lessons it forced me to learn. My hope and the hope of our guests is that by telling all of our stories, we'll be able to teach you and teach each other what to avoid and how in the hell to avoid it. To make the industry better, to make the people happier, and hopefully, to even make the beer taste better. So thanks for joining us and being part of this journey. If you feel inspired, I would appreciate a like, a share, and a rating. You can't even imagine the difference that it actually makes. People like to say that I don't want people to follow their dreams if they're dreaming about mash paddles and mass distribution. While that's not entirely true, I do think the odds are you'll be living on ramen noodles and stolen Netflix, but if you are going to start a brewery, the point would be to do it right and make some money. Before you get to that point, you have to figure out just how in the world are you going to pay for it. You're going to need hundreds of thousands of dollars, preferably someone else's. My guest today is Jason Sleeman from the Craft Beverage Lending Division of United Community Bank. He's sharp, he's experienced, and he's directly on the front lines of this industry. He knows what's worked, what hasn't, what's coming, and what's dead. I asked him on the show partly because some of you have said that I'm mostly negative. First of all, get over it. This is serious business and my entire goal is to show you the real and honest side of the industry that no one else seems to be willing to share. But Jason has a perspective centered around how to make a brewery happen, how to make it profitable, and how to make it valuable. What you're about to hear him share with us over the next couple hours is truly invaluable. It also happens to be positive. So there, are you happy now? Jason, I want to thank you for talking. Thanks for sharing. And thanks, most of all, for giving a Willy Wonka-style fuck about helping my guests be better in their careers today. Uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, I'm interested in talking to you today for a few reasons. and it, One of them is I think people have been giving me a little bit of shit for not being a little more positive about the future of the industry. And that something is the nature of like who I am and my personality. So, that means they don't like me personally. And, and I'm comfortable with that. But... I'm a guy who spends his days kind of like shitting on the industry and, and you conversely spend your days betting on winners and trying to find the, the best new brewery of the next decade. So theoretically, you're going to add a ray of sunshine to my show. So I thank you for bringing that counterpoint to who I am. I'm happy to have you disagree with me. So please take every opportunity that you can to completely take the opposite side and let me know how stupid I am because that makes it fun. Deal? I am planning on giving you a couple of rays of sunshine at least. All right, good. Well, we could use them for sure. By that topic, I should also say that the name of the show, the concept of what I do, and who I am as a person is a little bit vulgar. But since you're a banker, I'm challenging myself to uh, behave more like a well-adjusted adult today. So I'm going to keep my F-words to a minimum. I should clarify, I'm going to attempt to keep my F-words to a minimum. We'll see how that works. But I appreciate you influencing me to be a better human today. So you uh, you work on the lending side of the industry. You fund startup. You fund growth. I'm sure to a lesser extent, kind of operating capital. But... Before we really go into that, I want to hear about like the business overall, your opinion of where we're going and what works and what doesn't. Let's get to know you. So before you were a professional check writer, what'd you do? What was your first career? I was actually outdoorsy as before I got my first real office job, right? So I was a backpacking guy and I was like a climbing and rappelling instructor. I did a lot of 
cool outdoorsy stuff. And then my first job out of college, I, I joke that I actually worked in a company just like the office. I actually worked for a paper company and sold paper uh, over the phone. I actually cold called people and called uh, like copy shops and things like that and sold them paper uh, over the phone. That didn't last very long uh, because I found out about commission and um, I made a huge sale and paid for myself for about 10 years worth of salary. And I went to my boss and said, hey, we should do something. He says, we can talk about it next year. And I said, yeah, I got to find the world of commission. And so I left there and became a mortgage loan officer. Like I feel like half the bankers do started writing mortgages and then had a unique opportunity to, they were trying to blend a hybrid role of a banker slash mortgage person. It did not work. And uh, they said, okay, now you've had a taste of both. Do you want to go back to the mortgage world or do you want to stay on the banking <laughs> side? I said, I want to stay on the banking side. And so I, I kind of worked my way up across doing personal loans and then, you know, more commercial loans and then got into doing uh, craft beverage loans. And so like, we'll get to that part in a second, but I do want to hear one of my favorite questions to ask everybody is what's the worst job you ever had since you were a kid? Like what's the one job you hated the most? So it was a temporary job. The Olympics were in Atlanta in 96. So I was in high school at that point and I went and worked for somebody and literally put a, like an igloo style cooler on my shoulder and walked through a crowd and sold coats individually while people were watching the Olympics on a big screen. It was hot and not fun. And I don't think I made very much money doing it. So it wasn't a very good job. Did you sell the Cokes for like $14 or whatever they normally do at sporting events? Yeah. So there were, it was kind of far away. So I, I joked that, you know, back when the Olympics were in Atlanta, everyone, no matter how far away from actual Atlanta you were. And so this was like a 45 minute drive from where the stadiums were. And so it was kind of like the local community doing it. So before food trucks were cool, they kind of put some of these like permanent food trailers there and they were doing that. And I was working for one of the guys there and that was his answer to sell more stuff was to take the Cokes to the crowd. So that was, that was the answer. And yeah, it was like two or three bucks. So it was, I don't know what the margins were, but it wasn't very good. <laughs> it wasn't good enough to stay in it at least. All right. So you're in banking, you're doing quote unquote normal stuff, right? Like loans for cars and um, even I'm sure some like home expansions or whatever. And, and someday some dude walks in and says, Hey, I'm going to do a brewery. Do you want to give me money for that? And that sparked something like, right. So how, how did it go from that first loan to holy shit, this is my career. I got to do this for a living. Yeah. So it, it actually was kind of like that. So the way my first brewery deal got finance was one of our kind of higher ups in the bank said, Hey, this son of this really good client of ours wants to start a brewery. I don't know anything about it. And I don't think most people know anything about it. Figure it out. And so we actually, that's how I, that's literally it. So I show up and this guy's a startup and I'm doing my first brewery loan. So neither one of us, I think really knew much of what was going on. Um, this was even before the heyday of construction being as crazy as it is. And so I said, well, how much do you think you need? And he gave me a number. I said, okay, I think we can figure that out. So we go through and kind of bump into it. And we give him that amount. He got about halfway through the construction and said, uh, hey, we're out of money. I'm like, okay, well, what do you want to do about that? And he's like, well, I need more money. So well, how much do you think we need? And so we pretty much doubled the first loan with the second one. And we got that finished. So the first one was a little bumpy. But what I realized was, unlike a lot of the other clients I had, the advice and the education that we were working together on was good for him. And it was good for me too. And so I said, okay, we did this. It was not too terrible. Who else do you know that's doing one of these? So he introduced me to a couple other people. I realized the reason the reason I do it is because of the people. I, I know you talked about having uh, some really awesome people in the industry, and that's part of why you did it. And that's why I do it too, right? So I, I, I don't brew the beer. I've never been a home brewer. I, I never did any of that stuff. I, I actually have no desire to ever be a home brewer. But 
because the people there are so awesome and they really, as a lender, since I've seen it so many times now, I really can impact, you know, some things and people will listen. I say, well, this may or this may not work. Here's where I've not seen it work. Here's where I have seen it work. Go talk to these people and come back and we'll figure it out. Uh, you know, they take that advice as opposed to, uh, you don't know anything. I'll just go find, you know, something else to do. You know, there's a lot more impact on being able to influence and make sure things are more successful, right? I, I, the reason I do it is to try and help breweries be successful because I joke, every bank will do a brewery loan at least once until that brewery <laughs> fails and then they all do it again. Right. And so yeah. I'm trying to do this more than one time. And so I have to make sure that what we make is stuff that's going to be measurably successful. Over yeah. So that's actually one of the questions I had for you at one point. Like, obviously, I have talked to multiple different banks throughout the years, and most of them either don't lend to the brewing industry or don't understand how to make money doing it. We're going to get to where you are now in just a second, but what sets you guys apart from that? So like, and there's an example, there's some, it's only a couple of guys in the industry that really specialize like that. I know like JP Morgan put a page on their website that says they do, but that doesn't mean that they really do. But what, what makes you guys special to the industry, right? Why do I want to get a loan from Jason? Yeah. And, and so this is interesting. It's actually something I posted about about a week ago on LinkedIn. So I, I don't know that you saw the post, but what I tell people is, and, and I say the, the money's green, right? My money is the same as green. And I really do only think there's a couple of people who are different that want to do it. But I tell people it really isn't the loan. It's everything else I do, right? So I was at a technical brewers conference the other day. I have a brewery that really likes to brew fruity beers and stuff like that. And there's a hop coming out that's Fruit Loop variety. And so I text them like, hey, Yakima Chiefs is sitting here talking about this. Here's this hop variety. This is what you're going to want to get next year, right? And then I was talking to another brewery. And he's like, hey, we're, we're, we're moving to another city, but we don't really know anyone in there. And I said, okay, cool. And the next day I made an introduction to the head of like their Brewers Alliance in that city, a real estate person in that city. And then another brewery is in there to try and help them, them do that. And then someone else, I've got an RTD company. And I met someone who's a potential, you know, supplier for their spirits and said, Hey, you two should talk. So what I think I'm different for is a lot more than just the, the money part of it. It's a lot more about the connections and it's a lot more about me being invested in the brewery and the distillery and the RTD company that I work with after we close. I want to make sure that if I can figure out a way to help them make some more money or find a way to help them you know, get the right hot variety that someone else doesn't know about. If I, if I know about it, that, that's something that I feel like I'm, uh, you know, almost, uh, uh, not the best way to put it, but I'm almost obligated to share with them that, Hey, you need this because it'll help your business and it'll help you make more money. That's, that's how I look at it. It's, <laughs> it's a lot more about relationship than it is about making money. Well, I think that's an advantage of being a specialist too, is that at some point that all you think about is that versus if you go to bank X, then, you know, they're, again, they're still doing home loans and wheel loans for got to jack his truck up. I'm in Texas. So that might be a little different perspective, but yeah. So, so yeah, I think that's an advantage. So I would agree. But so how did the move to specialization go? Like this is one that I'm kind of curious of because in a, in a way you're sort of like, you're, you're doing the job, you're meeting these people, you're getting to this point, but it's still jumping off a cliff, building the plane on the way down once you decided to do it. So how did you, A, get to that point and B, where'd you find the balls to do it? So uh, I actually been tracking the UCV job for a while. Weirdly enough, I've been tracking it ever since because um, at the time I felt like I was the biggest competitor to UCV, right? So me doing my thing out there, I was in the Southeast, they were in the Southeast. When someone was saying, hey, I'm shopping, it was me and them, right? And so I've been tracking it for a while. And weirdly enough, the position came open 
at the start of COVID. So it actually started, it came open in March of 2020. There was a hiring freeze, so I didn't actually come over until September of 2020. But I knew this is what I wanted because I, I knew I wanted to do it full-time. And it is a lot of still kind of building. We haven't had a normal year, you know, <laughs> since I've been here. Right? There, there hasn't been a normal this is what normal operations look like for a year. So it, it does take a lot of education and a lot of research and a lot of understanding and having a lot of conversations with the client, but also having credit team that understands the industry and is willing to say, okay, I think this is the way we can structure it. Having kind of support to say, hey, how do we make this work? I would love to say that there's a cookie cutter set. And, and you know, I think you would probably agree with this. There's no two breweries that are exactly the same. So you can't just say, oh, this worked exactly perfectly for brewery A. Let's just keep pumping that out, A, B, C, D, E, you know, you've got version A, version B, version C, and they're all of them. So it's, um, you know, it takes a little challenge. It takes a lot of work and it, it takes, you know, some flexibility on the borrower side, but also on the bank side to find a solution, not get the bank in trouble and not get the brewery in trouble. Yeah. Well, so one of the main reasons I want to have you on the show is so we can discuss what those things are, which we're going to get to in the second and third segments, but specifically talk. So I know that's one of those things that you're in the industry and you've been doing this for a long time. So when you hear the, the number SBA 7A, you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But uh, you know a lot of our listeners are considering opening a brewery, even though I'm doing my best to talk them out of it. It does not work. Can you give a little insight into what sort of like, like that program is, the 504? Like, What exactly yeah. do you offer outside of just saying, oh, you have a business plan, here's some money? So I can talk about the one that is probably uh, gets used less, which is the 504. 504 gets used less because it is a built for large capital expenditure, right? So when you look at the 504 program, that is built for purchasing real estate and purchasing equipment, right? It's not used for working capital. It's not for used for leasing another building. It's not It's not used for that, right? So it's, it's going out and when a brewery, and it, and it rarely happens, I would love to see it happen more. Maybe if real estate prices come down eventually, nice and slowly though. We don't want them to craft. We want them to be nice and slow. Um, you know, you'd have some more, you'd have some more options for this, but the 504 is really just, you know, Hey, I want to go out and I'm going to buy my space and I'm going to put some equipment in it. That's where that one works. So the one we see most often in the brewery space is the 7A. And I would consider that the main, that, that's the, the main product that the SBA offers. So that one is a catch all program. And so that one allows for capital purchase, right? So you can still purchase equipment with it, but it allows you to improve someone else's building. So if someone's going and you're going to lease a space, but you need to put trench trains in and AC units and bathrooms and walls in it, it'll allow you to put that in there. It also allows you to put working capital in, which is super important. I think we all know that in the brewing industry, having plenty of working capital is, is really key. So the 7A kind of lets you bundle that all into one loan. Um, as opposed to saying, hey, I want to you do the 504, the working capital has to be outside of that. I mean, you can't use it on lease building. You can't can't do those pieces. So the majority of what we see is a 7A. And the general terms on a 7A are a 10-year fully amortizing. So when you when you look at it, for project gets up to be two or three million dollars, it's a pretty hefty payment because you're having to fully pay it off over 10 years. But you know, if you if you've got a, a brewery that you know has got a construction, you know, a lot of times if we're doing construction, things like that, we're gonna give you an interest only period up front to allow you to get the build out, get stabilized. I want you to have beer coming out of the tank before the principal and interest starts to hit. That's one of the secrets to having you be successful is I don't want you opening your doors paying the full payment the very first month out there, I'd like to give you enough interest only to finish the construction part of it. And then give you one or two months of kind of ramping up uh, where the interest only period is still there. You've got some revenue. 
I'm going. So when the principal hits, you've kind of built up a little bit of the nest egg to make sure you're ready. You know, most of what we're doing is a 7A, and it's kind of the, the bulk of what people are seeing. You know, we didn't talk about conventional. Conventional is, you know, something I always joke that it's not used as much in breweries because you, you talk about it a lot. Breweries are very capital intensive business. And once every brewery planes off, they want to spend more money. And so they don't really get the debt service coverage ratio for a long enough time to get qualified for conventional. So you see a lot of SBA loans because the SBA will allow us to go off of projections, allow us to kind of say, okay, you've kind of leveled off. And now this next part will help you get, get a little bit you know, bigger. Where conventional says, you have to show me two years of historic debt service coverage for us to do that. I would argue also that the terms are, in my opinion, having longer fully amortizing loans over three and five-year balloons also helps a brewery plan a little bit better than saying, I don't know what I'm going to really have in three years and what if I have to actually pay it off. That that's that can be a challenge too. But of course, then you have to plan and actually use spreadsheets and, and have an actual... <laughs> Let's, that's a whole other show. We'll do that one later. So those are the main programs that you offer, basically. And that was the, when somebody comes to you, they should think in the framework of essentially those three options. Yeah. Okay. That, that's that's more what we see is one of the two SBA loans, or if, if they've if they've been really strong, and, and we see breweries that have been around for a while, you know, not expanded in a while, um, they, they do qualify. I like to share that simply because I'm probably the only idiot in the room. But when I was, this is like 2007. Oh, 2004, excuse me. I'd opened a, a business and I went to Bank of America and I, I, I was opening another gym. So my second fitness center and I was trying to borrow 75 grand for equipment. And I remember I went through the process, sent everything in. And so we didn't have a lot of banks in the area. So Bank of America was one that was like, they would actually take my call and went in. They call me back and they're like, hey, congratulations, Mr. Meyer. We've approved your loan. Yeah, for seventy five thousand. Shit, yeah, I'm gonna be able to my gym. And they go, so where do you want to deposit the seventy five thousand? I go, no, what, no, what? Now I, what, you mean where do you want to deposit? You mean my checking account number? She's like, no, no, no. You have to give us seventy five thousand to for a CD, and then we'll, they'll give you that as a loan. I'm like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I just hung up on her. Yeah, which is fine. Those things happen all day long. But don't tell me I'm approved. I'm clearly not approved in that situation. So can you give me an idea of like kind of how you approach lending for breweries different than you used to for what I would consider normal businesses or traditional businesses? It's about being very cautious in how you approach it, right? So I joke a little bit and I know that you know, listening to some of your other podcasts, you got a lot of people that have been homebrewers. I think the industry's kind of gotten a little past where homebrewers are really the ideal candidate for a startup brewery at this point, right? Like, I, I want to see someone who has more experience in the industry as opposed to you go back to the, you know, the Anytime Fitness. They've got a franchise model that says, hey, if you can operate within this guide rails, you'll be successful. Um, it's a lot harder in the brewing industry to do that, right? There's no franchise brewery that says, hey, Kelly, just come up. We'll plug and play this. Steve's your brewer. He he comes from from corporate. And he's going to brew some great beer. And this is uh, Sandra, and she's your front of house manager. And you're good. Like, just start rolling back and collecting the checks. It's a lot more building. I think it's important for what are soon-to-be brewery owners to have some experience in the industry. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they have to be the brewer. There's plenty of people who have successfully run breweries that aren't the brewer. They, they've got a front of house background. They've got a marketing background. They've got a financing background. But it's important to have some industry experience because, you know, I've heard on your podcast before that uh, this is really painful sometimes, right? And so, you know, if you don't, I was listening to one earlier and they were talking about caustic and bleeding. And you know, <laughs> if, if, you, if, you, if you haven't CIP to tank ever, you know, and that's what's something you think you want to do, you know, it could be a rude awakening. So, you know, I, I think if someone's going to take the full lead, that they should probably go find a brewery that will allow them to 
work front of house, be a beer tender, be a sweep in the back, move kegs around, wash kegs. Washing kegs, I don't think is as fun as people think it is either. And, and being able to kind of understand those pieces of it. So being a brewery is a manufacturing business, but it's not a manufacturing business like any other, right? Like if you get it wrong, it it's, can be very catastrophic, right? It's not like sending out a pallet load of wonky lumber where someone's like, well, this one's not great, but we'll get up to the next one, right? If you start sending out bad beer, it's going to create a reputational risk that you may or may not be able to come back from. So being able to understand that, being able to understand what is the right POS system, you know, what do you want your core to look like? If, if you walk in cold, those things are all really hard decisions to make. I think you need experience to be able to do it. So for me, you know, the number one thing I'm doing is, you know, asking them what's their experience. Why do they want to do it? Right. Because, you know, with 9,000 breweries now, because it's cool, it's not also a good answer either. Right. I, you know, we're, we're past <laughs> being cool and, you know, and, and enjoying, you know, it's a, there's no more luxury lifestyle business in the brewing industry. You got to treat it like it's a business. So, uh, unfortunately, you still do see a lot of that. At least, hopefully, you don't. But I still see a lot of it around us. We're, you know, a home brewer that's going pro and whatever. It just, you know, now, now more than ever, that's a challenging spot to be in for sure. Actually, let's get into a little more detail about, like, what you actually do look for and how that works. But first, I need to take a walk around the block. I'm a little, conf- like, confused. And so, I'm going to get back and get focused. And I'll, let's take a quick break. I'll be right back. Do you guys remember when the phone company used to print all the phone numbers on the internet? and then send it to your house in some book large enough to knock someone the hell out? That's how I feel about fermenting beer in closed tanks without AccuBrew. So the industry can be so much better by just being digital. AccuBrew is simple to install, simpler to use, and one of those how in the hell do we ever get along without it products. For less than the case of beer a month, you'll get real-time fermentation feedback on current gravity, temperature, and even clarity. If anything is slowing down or out of the range you set for your recipes, it'll alert you, your brewer, and whoever the hell gets paid to fix it. Making better beer in 2023 is not an option. Install AccuBrew as soon as you possibly can, check improving the quality of the beer off your list, and get back to figuring out how on earth to be profitable in your beer business. Drop your mash paddle, go to AccuBrew.io, follow them on socials at AccuBrew, or just call Parker at 727-685-9860. Your beer, your customers, and least of all, I will thank you. All right, welcome back. Thanks for sticking with us. Um, so you walked right into that, and I am going to drag as much out of that as I possibly can, Jason. So what are the KPIs you look for? What do you care about? Like, is it collateralized at 140%? Is it credit is going to be 900? Or is it something simple? Like, you look at the business plan, and there's the right barrelage in there, the, a bunch of stolen IP from Disney and Hershey or whatever. Like, what, what is it that you need to see? You know, and, and I kind of talk about it as two different um, categories, right? So I think we look for different things in startups than we do for an expansion. And so I can talk about startups. Um, the startups are, are a lot more focused on the individual that is in the driver's seat for this. So I don't have historic past. I mean, I can't go out and necessarily taste your beer, right? So if you don't have a lot of beer, I, I can't taste that. So um, you know, I'm hoping you've worked for someone else and I can taste their beer, some beer that you brewed somewhere else. That's always helpful. Uh, but really what I want to see um, on a startup is I want to see a couple of things. One, I want to see a solid business plan. Um, and by solid business plan, I first mean, you know, you took some effort to actually put this there. Uh, you've, you've thought it out. Uh, you've thought about how you're going to reach the numbers. Uh, you haven't said, you know, like I, I got a, a startup the other day uh, and it was... Every single month from January to December had the exact same numbers. In it. And what that told me is they didn't understand the industry, right? So there are some 
breweries that do very well in the winter and some breweries that do very well in the summer, but you're definitely not going to have flat all across the board. Right. And so that, that to me is a kind of a telltale sign that, you know, you don't understand your market or you don't understand the industry if you have exactly the same. And so, you know, in this guy's case, um, I think it was just him being a little scared. I went back to him and said, Hey, help me understand. And he goes, well, yeah, we're going to have this seasonality, but I just, you know, was, wasn't sure, you know. And so I'll also uh-huh. joke Kelly that this is where um, I add the difference because, you know, that regular banker, you talk about one of those big banks, uh, they're probably not going to, they're going to say, yeah, yeah, sure. You got projections. That's great. Right. And uh, for me, we can have a little bit more intelligent conversation about well, where do you think your high months are going to be? Where are you going to be your low months? How are you going to make up for the cash flow in the low months, you know, with the, with the high months? So anyways, that's a tangent we're getting off on. Uh, but, you know, I want to see that. I, I want to understand the, um, you know, owner's kind of resume. So have you owned a business before? Have you worked in the industry? What led you to do this? Right. It, you know, and, and how do you, how do you, how are you going to, you know, apply your skills to it? Um, also in the, you know, on the start startups, it's a lot more important to understand the ownership structure. So, you know, if you're going to be the brewer, um, or if, even more importantly, if you're not going to be the, like, is the brewer going to get any equity? Uh, what, why did you choose that? What are you going to do to incentivize them? Because unfortunately, I've seen startups where the brewer and the owner get in a fight the day before they open and the brewer has no equity. And so he says, hey, this was fun. Go find yourself a new brewer. And that is a terrifying place to be. Um, So, you know, kind of understanding, you know, what the role is going to be. How are you making sure that you're protecting against the downside? So, you know, it's it's, you know, sad to say, but, you know, on the startup, it's a lot more about the strength um, that you bring to the table. Uh, unfortunately, the very first negative personal financial statement that I ever saw. Um, so negative, meaning that they had more liabilities than they had assets. <laughs> someone trying to start a brewery. Right. And so I was like, hey, man, like you're not a good you're actually not a very good risk for the bank because you don't have anything to, to lend or inject. And that was a concept you didn't really understand. So, you know, I tell people, you know, when you're starting a brewery, you better make sure that you've taken care of yourself personally first. Um, you know, making sure that you either have some money. Uh, or you um, have someone that doesn't, uh, you know, is not poor, right? You, you need some people who can help, uh, you know, when things go wrong uh, to help make sure that you can ride out those small little bumps of the road. So I have to imagine that you get people that'll tell you like, you know, they've been pre-selling essentially and they already have an Instagram account and they're going to they're gonna use their follower account to tell you why they should do it uh, or why you should do it, excuse me. Um, I've even talked to people that, had gotten a statewide liquor store to quote unquote commit to selling their product without tasting any of it, obviously, um, as a startup, um, and and they've put that in their business plan. And um, like, does that carry any weight with you? Not much. Uh, not much. What what I'd much rather see instead of someone doing that is go out and contract brew or do some collabs. Uh, we just had a brewery in Atlanta. That's actually how they built it. They started in 2016 just brewing collabs with everybody and they were not really making any money, but now they've got their name out there uh, and they've got brand out there. So when they bring it in house, uh, they've actually already got people who are looking for it on the shelves. They've got people who want to taste it. So um, for me, uh, you know, I personally think, and I I think you think uh, you'll have to just tell me if I'm wrong, there's a ton of brewing capacity in the industry right now. Right. So there's, thousands and thousands and thousands of barrel capacity that's going unused right now. And so if someone was going to kind of say, Hey, look, this is how we, we wanted to go. They were a little unsure. I would tell them, 
go contract Bruce for a little while. Bruce some, Bruce some, you know, either package product and see if you can hand sell it and get it on a shelf somewhere. Um, you know, if, if you can do that in your state or, you know, go out and try and, you know, sign like with one of the boutique distributors and try and get some, uh, get some draft out there. Uh, you're going to be much better off in my mind. If you can go out and say, Hey, look, we're, you know, we, we sold, we made 10 barrels and we sold through that in a month. And I can say, okay, there's a little bit of demand for your product. So, the Instagrams, the, you know, the Facebook callers, that kind of stuff um, is not something that is a metric that, that I'm going to win the bunch of money. So if it's going to be small and boutique and, you know, it's it's uh, not not going to be a lot, then maybe. Uh, but if you're like, hey, I want to put a, you know, a 10 or 20 or 30 barrel system in and we've got some Instagram callers, uh, that that's not a, that's not a, a great sign that it's going to you know, pay us back. Yeah, well, there's ways to get them. But again, they haven't tasted your beer, so they're not really your follower. They just think maybe your, your shit's cool and your picture or whatever. But um, but so you did say one that, to be honest, I was a little surprised. And then that you you actually would like to taste the beer and that that would potentially weigh into your decision to you know move this up the line, at least on a loan side. So I guess my question would be, there's a wide variety of flavors, and typically you're going to be tasting beer that's either, you know, again, if, a, if it's a brewer coming from another brewery, maybe that system is better, and that recipe wasn't his or hers. Um, how, how, do you, how do you weigh the flavor of the beer in the overall picture, I guess, would be the question. Yeah, so it's, it's actually more helpful on the expansion than it is on the start, right? Sure. So, um, you know, especially locally, um, I've had some guys who, you know, they've got homebrew and they're just like, hey, taste this homebrew, right? And so you can tell, like, I've been around long enough where I can say, okay, this is oxidized or whatever, right? So, like, kind of understanding that they know some of the concepts of it. Um, and then, you know, deciding if it's drinkable or not, right? That's, like, my first thing is, like, do I want to spit it out when I taste it, right? If we get past that, we do it. But I usually don't try and taste it by myself, right, because it's not just – you know, it may be a beer I just don't like, right? So I try and get some some people around um, that, that can taste it and say, okay, what do you think? Um, and I've had a lot of times where I'm like, oh, I don't know about this. And then five other people say, this beer is awesome. Like, All right, we'll clear that I'm having an off day. Uh, let's see what we can do. Um, you know, and I, I think part of it is just uh, having them being willing to let you try it, uh, I think is just as important as actually being able to try it, right? So them not saying, well, I don't, <laughs> know. I don't know that I want you to try this, right? Like, it's like, oh, yeah, I got some. I can go get you some. Or, um, you know, it's, 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 it happens well enough. Um, you know, when I when I go meet a client and they say, you know, just like every other client, and, and what, I know we're going to talk about this more later, but, like, people will say, hey, do you want to try a beer, right? And so sometimes it's 9 o'clock in the morning. I'll say yes, but very small. And I usually tell them I, the, way, the two things that I always have used as my measuring stick is I say, Give me whatever your cleanest beer is, right? So like your lager or a Pilsner or a Kolsch, something like that. I want to taste that. And I want to make sure that I'm not tasting a lot of stuff, right? I don't want to taste, you know, funky in the lines or whatever, right? And then I'll taste that small thing, you know, usually an ounce or two. And I'll say, all right, great. Give me whatever your funkiest thing is. Like whatever the most wild, far out thing that you've got is, that's what I want to try. And then so you, I try that. And I'm like, all right, I kind of understand the range, right? So I can say, okay, they can actually brew a clean beer or they're you know, lager tastes like ish water, right? And then, you know, this really funky thing is like, they're never going to sell this or it does actually taste pretty good and you can, you can do it. So, you know, for me, it's, you know, it's it's just as important about them being proud and telling the story and here's what we did with this, um, you know? And so it does not, I, I will, you know, 
be fully transparent. The taste of the beer doesn't, um, you know, prevent me from doing it or make me do it. Right. I'm not going to say, oh, my gosh, you're losing two million dollars a year, but your beer tastes great. Let's do this. Right. That's not going to happen. And there's other times where people are making really great uh, money. And I say, I don't really like this beer, but geez, everyone else must like it. Right. They're they're they, they sold, you know, a thousand barrels this year. Clearly, I just my taste buds are bad, right? And so I so I acknowledge that, right? So I, I look, the beer is helpful to say is this good or bad, but mainly it's the numbers, right? The number the numbers, uh, and I'm hoping that everyone understands why the numbers are king. <laughs> um, you know, understanding the numbers and you know your ability to pay the loan back is really the most important. Yeah, well, if you can't, you should go find a rich guy to give you the money, and then he doesn't care. That that's way easier. Um, all right. So, what about like, and I've heard this one quite a bit too. That, that maybe less so recently, but having distribution contracts prior to opening, and that I have, especially in Texas, I've seen it. Like, that does that weigh much in your decision? So this will kind of go back to my my thought a little bit, um, and I think we'll probably talk about this more later. So I won't go too deep into it. But I think right now the um, you know the brewery that I'm feeling is most coming out or most we're seeing and that I feel has the most runway, at least in the short term, is the small tap rooms, right? The guys that are only going to put out a couple hundred barrels and their big distribution plan is to put uh, crawlers in the cooler or, you know, to can a six pack here or there. Um, So the distribution contracts don't mean a lot to me because uh, you're going to, you know, this is going to sound, I'm, I'm, this is going to be unsunshine and I'm not going to like this No, but uh, you know, the thing is like the distributors, there, there's nothing that distributors have to lose at this point. Right. And in, in most systems, if you came to them and said, Hey, I want you to sell my beer. They're going to say, great. And that's going to be the end of the discussion. That doesn't mm-hmm. you know, like they'll just take it. Right. So like, you know, I would love to see in um, this was a, I guess an off, off air question we talked about like the three tier system i would love to see a little bit more of a partnership where you know if you're a brewery a distributor doesn't pick you up until you got you know 200 barrels or 300 barrels or 400 barrels in the market and then all of a sudden they're like all right this is a viable brand let's let's do something right because it's it's a lot more meaningful when you've actually got some accounts you've got something set up um, versus just someone saying, hey, we're going to distribute it and we'll put you in the other, you know, 500 beers in our portfolio. Um, so the distributing contract, um, while nice, it's great that you've decided on a distributor and you feel comfortable about it. It, it doesn't make a record decision. I'm glad to hear that because I don't like distributors. Um, <laughs> I thought you, I like Chad from uh, Beer Valley. He was cool. I had him on the show and I like him. But, uh, so <clears throat> I know the... The distribution model, I think we kind of both agree. I like to say it's dead. I don't know if it's necessarily dead, but it's definitely not a place where if, if you're a newcomer coming into that side of the industry, you're either stupid or rich. And I, either one, I don't care. I don't like stupid people. And I don't tend to like rich people. So uh, not probably my friend, but how, are you still seeing those business models, uh, business plans, I guess, technically come across your desk for new three-state regional breweries with a 50-barrel brew house? I have not seen something like that in a little while. Um, and I would probably, uh, although I'm very uh, bullish on the industry overall, I, I don't know that I'm bullish about someone having that fight right now, right? So you know, I'm not going to tell you anything that no one's heard before, right? Shelf space is tight. 
Yeah. Um, you know, it's hard to get it, you know, place to place. I think the model that I have seen from an expansion standpoint, as opposed to someone going to a 50 barrel brew house, is someone going to the next state over and dropping another 10 barrel in that state and then going to the state north, dropping a 10 barrel there and then going, you know, south and west and kind of surrounding your place. And now you've got five, you know, small breweries and you know, the five states, you know, uh, around you. And that seems to carry a lot more weight um, than someone saying, hey, we're going to distribute 50 barrels uh, or, uh, you know, a, f- a 50 barrel batch out of there. And especially, um, you know, there, there are breweries now, at least in Georgia, and I'm sure there are plenty in Texas that are starting to be built for that kind of thing, right? So they are literally building themselves as contract breweries. And you go to them and say, hey, I want you to run a 100 barrel batch. You put it in packaging. You may not make a ton of money about it, but you also didn't take a ton of risk, right? If you can if you can sell through that batch of beer, you don't have all the equipment, you don't have the overhead, you don't have you know a packaging line running twenty four seven at your brewery. Um, you've you've got a little bit more for that. So I am a, a lot more for a um, instead of building and they will come, get them to come and then build it after that, right? So like sell sell sell. You know if you're going to start being a brewer that's going to move some weight, use a contract brewer. Let, let them move the weight for you. And then all of a sudden, like we, we had a brewery that's doing that right now. They're doing a, an expansion. They're building into not even a huge brew house, a 30 barrel brew house, uh, but they contract brewed for a year to meet the demand for the distributor that the distributor had. And they said, great. And so guess what's going to happen at the end of the year? They're going to be all out of that house. They'll bring the margins back in. I mean, it's always a pretty smart move for them. It was, it was painful for a year, um, but if it didn't work out and they didn't get it picked up, they weren't sitting on this big expansion. So they wanted to make sure that the expansion was there before uh, they actually spent the money to do it. Yeah, that makes sense. So to, to be honest, that was one of the biggest rays of sunshine that I've heard so far is that you told me that you're not seeing those business plans come across your desk because that means that the industry maybe is getting smarter and recognizing that that's, there's not any new growth in that department. Cause unfortunately that's what I, I think for me, one of the biggest frustrations that I saw 16, 17, and then just continued is that, people were still building out into a space that didn't have room for them. So I'm super glad to hear you say that you don't have any 50 barrel brew houses. That means we're, that's good. So, all right. Um, well, tell me, so we talked a little about like kind of what you look for in a business plan, but like specifically with like green flags, like what, when you see certain things in a business plan, you're like, oh, this is perfect. This is awesome. Um, is there anything that you, just normally would see and just then flip flat like one like you said experience or innovation is there some new beer that they've come up with um you know if you'd seen a hazy ipa uh back in 2011 would you have known that that's the next big thing like i don't know i guess 808 i think is when they started them but yeah so usually um the things that i will see that give me kind of the green light is you know on ex- on expanding it's my favorite phrase to hear is we have reached our max capacity. That's my favorite phrase to hear on an expansion, right? Someone, someone's like, we literally are running, you know, three shifts a day. Um, the brew house is running all the time. We bought all this fermentation. We've got to go bigger. Right. And, and that for me is usually uh, almost an instant check mark that it's going to happen. Right. Because they've, you know, they've, they've probably, you know, been pretty smart with their money at this point. You know, there's the demand that's out there. Um, I, I love it when they're like, oh, yeah, we're, we're saying no all the time. Our distributor wants more beer. We just tell them no. And I'm like, all right, this is a good sign, right? So so the first the first thing I want to hear is we've, we've hit max capacity, right? We, we literally can't squeeze any more juice out of uh, the system. 
Uh, and then, you know, other, other, you know, huge KPIs that I think are, um, you know, good for us are, you know, seeing, seeing the cash flow. So I, I want everyone to understand and not be surprised when I say, Hey, your debt service coverage is this. And they're like, Oh, well, I didn't know that. Right. Um, so kind of understanding your numbers when you come to us for an expansion, um, you know, and I guess I'm more talking specifically about expansions, like mm-hmm. understanding, are you making money or are you not making money? And sometimes we get it. Um, the bank uses a different, um, all lending uses a different uh, qualifier. We use something called EBITDA, right? So I get to add back a couple of things. So you take your, you know, the basics of this is you take your, uh, you know, your revenue, you subtract out your cost of goods sold, you take out all your expenses, and then you kind of get that net revenue down at the bottom. Well, what I get to add back is the interest that you pay. So any interest you pay for my loan, your any any loans, and I get to add back your appreciation. And, and surprisingly enough, when that come that gets calculated uh, in the brewing industry, because it's such a capital there's a lot, intensive, yeah. yeah, those are huge numbers. I mean, right. so you could take somebody who's like they have a net income of you know a couple thousand dollars, and all of a sudden they've got a net income of one hundred fifty thousand dollars, right? And you're like, all right, so you know that that really moves the needle. So you know, understanding your numbers. Um, and, and having those, you know, be, you know, on the plus side, right? I, I, I want it to be in the black and not in the red. Um, we can deal with being in the red sometimes as long as it's an anomaly. Um, now I'm going to get off on a tangent, but, you know, with COVID, what we've been telling people is I want to kind of see it as a Nike swoosh. Can we say Nike swoosh? I, I don't know if I can. We, we can. Yeah. I would love to get sued. So please, <laughs> we can say Lacoste alligator. We can, whatever else you want to throw in that. Okay. All right. So I, I want to see that that check mark where it's you know 2019 was maybe the high water mark you know 2020 dropped down I want to see 2021 and 22 climbing back out of that valley um and so you know it's if if we can explain it uh, there's a lot of times where you have like a negative year and you say oh let me explain this is what happened right here's how it happened um you know right now I just everybody you know we're having it in 2020 as a COVID discussion right like either got you in 2020 or in early 2021 depending on what it was. But anyways, um, you know, if you if if I'm seeing you come out of that valley, um, that's a great indicator for us to look at, at, at potential expansion there. Um, you know, I think uh, the green flag on um, startups is you know having plenty of personal assets, plenty of collateral, um, something that we can sink our teeth into. Um, you know, and, and being able to kind of understand um, the business plan is is kind of the key factors there. So. Uh, you know, on expansion is it's definitely about, you know, making sure that you're not trying to expand prematurely. And on the uh, startups, it's about making sure that when you do get in the game, um, you've got enough uh, money and, and, and sense to be able to make a good business. <laughs> All right. Well, I was going to take a break, but there's a question I want to ask you that uh, I just I just can't not ask. So I want to know about contract brewing. You mentioned it a little bit. Is it, and you mentioned it was a good place to get started, which I would absolutely wholeheartedly agree with. But uh, at that point, you have zero assets essentially. So, from if someone's trying to start up a contract brewing business, can you loan or have you loaned on that? To the actual person who is co- who is going to be a contracting? So, not the one that owns a facility, but the brand that is going to be paying them per case to do it. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, we. We can give them a small loan, right? So, in, in I'll tell you, there's a lot of non-bank lenders that are out there that are pretty interesting about this too, right? So, if you're saying, hey, uh, you know, for a contract brewer, my, this is my opinion, right or wrong, whatever it is, you should be turning 
that cash pretty quickly, right? So you go and brew a batch, you go out and sell the batch, you take some profitability from that, but hopefully you've got enough to brew the second batch, right? So you take some profitability, pay yourself a little bit, pay a little bit towards the loan, and then hopefully you'll have enough to do the second batch, brew that second batch, and then hopefully it just kind of starts a, a recurring. So it shouldn't be something where you know, you need to borrow and continue to borrow and borrow and borrow. So, you know, what we've seen is, you know, kind of small working capital loans, more more signature type loans. Um, we've seen people use home equity lines to do that. Um, we've seen, you know, some of these micro lenders. So there's four or five micro lenders. There's one in here in Georgia. Like there's a payday loan? <laughs> no, not payday loans. So what they are, they're like, they're like $50,000, $100,000. They're, they're commercial business loans. Um, they, they usually have kind of like a grant or a program that kind of helps fund them. And their mission is to help, you know, extremely small businesses, which I would, consume, would consider a single owner, contract brewer, mm-hmm. and extremely small business, right? And so their whole thing is they don't want to give, um, you know, so, I, so we partner up with them all the time because I'll get someone to come to me and say, hey, I need $50,000. Well, I am not cost effective for $50,000. So I tell them, hey, look, consider these guys because they don't really have the closing costs. They don't really have anything, but the same thing is if someone comes for a $500,000 loan, that's not their wheelhouse either. So these, these guys are usually under hundred thousand dollar loans, very small. You're kind of given a signature and they're kind of taking a ride with you to, to hope that it's successful. And um, so that, that's what I'm seeing a lot of these contract brewers do, um, or you maybe get a couple partners together and you don't take any debt. Right. And so you say, Hey, you know, let's get, let's everyone kind of throw in, you know, 10, $15,000. Let's do this and just kind of ride this until the money runs out. And if it, if it, if it was bad, uh, it was a pretty low risk. And if it was good, then we want to take a little bit more of a ride. We've, we've got sales numbers. The reason I like it is because I have sales numbers. I have a PL. It may not be a great PL, but I can at least see that you're selling. You've got some stuff. You've kind of got the, you're also committed to it, right? Because if you're contract brewing and then you're the sales force, um, you know, it's not something where you're just saying, oh, this is just the hobby business. You're definitely not propping your feet up on a bar, drinking a beer. You're, you're out, you know, knocking on doors and saying, hey, will you carry this beer? Will you carry this beer? And so it shows a lot of initiative. Uh, yeah. So if someone's business model was to start at contract, um, and then grow into something brick and mortar, would you recommend that they do the micro loan first and start contacting you right out of the gate so they can kind of build a business plan that you can fund on the second project? Yeah, yeah. Well, it, for me, I don't think you could ever start talking to her, right? There, there are guys that I've talked to and it it's becomes three or four years before we actually do anything. And so um, for me, I enjoy having the conversations and providing the advice. So if someone's out there and they want to contract brew for a little while and get some, uh, you know, some miles under their, their belt, um, you know, it, it's good to sit there and talk early with them. And we can start talking about like, Hey, here's what you should be measuring. And here's the data that, that I want to see. And here's the rewards, right? Cause really what I want to see is your reward, right? So if you sell a keg once, anyone can sell a keg once, right? But can you sell a keg? two and three and four and five times the same person, especially because if you're contract brewing, you probably only got one, one brew beer. You may have two, but you're definitely, you don't have a whole portfolio. You're not offering them 10 beers. So that one beer better be good and dialed in and they better want it back. And so, you know, it's going to have to kick quick and, um, you know, them want to have it. So it, it tells me that 
there's some life within the potential brewery. All right. No, good. I like that. So, all right. So we are now going to take a break. We'll do a quick one, though. Right. We'll, we'll take a long one. And then uh, when we come back, we're going to go full Kelly because now it's going to be time to talk about red flags, bad stuff, like what doesn't work in the craft beer industry. But uh, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. So do you ride motorcycles? Because if you do, you want the sickest gear on the planet. And SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com is the site for you. Break free from the pack with your kick-ass style and design that is as subtle as a sucker punch. When you're out on the open road, don't let anyone confuse you with your grandpa. Project an attitude that's all your own. With their signature style and performance, Simpson sets the standard of looking cool while providing superior comfort and protection. Authenticity counts, and there are many helmet brands out there, but there is only one Simpson. You ride a killer bike, don't you? Why settle for a boring helmet? Pick your poison at SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com. Badass riders don't settle for anything less. See for yourself on Instagram at Simpson underscore motorcycle underscore helmets. Thanks for riding with us. We'll see you out there. Okay, welcome back. I want to do my thing now. Well, I want you to do my thing for me. Let's talk about business plans that don't work. Say a brewery came to you and they said they were going to make truly amazing sour beer, like really awesome sour beer, mostly large format bottles, 750s, specialty stuff in 500s, distribute in five states with, you know, quaint tasting room and a small historic downtown. Let's say the city is 70,000 people locally, but there's only three other breweries in town. And it's a town that is like the best known tourist spot in Texas, one of the three largest states in America. Would you give them money? Uh, so in today's, in today's, I, I don't know, it'd be, I would tell you it'd be very hard for me to Right. So here's here's a couple of things. One, I'm biased because I love sour. Um, but I think it's hard. It, it would be very hard to look at the numbers. On that, right. So as as you look at as you look at what it is, the question I have is you may know this better than I. I, I don't know how many sour drinkers there are in Texas. Right. So of 70,000 people, how many of those people? Is that five people or 30,000? people? Right. Um, and I see. I think that's interesting. I think it's hard right now for someone to be ultra specialized, right? We've kind of gotten to a market now where when I see a business plan, I want to see the opposite of what you just described. Um, and what I am seeing a lot is people talking, and I think the seltzer craze kind of started this, is breweries that do a lot more than beer, right? So a brewery that also does a cider, that also does a seltzer, mm-hmm. that also maybe has a distilled spirit permit that is making old fashions and Manhattans and everything else. Uh, because, you know, the biggest thing that we've seen over the last couple of years is people saying, I want to go because I like exit this brewery, but my wife or my friend or Dave down the street doesn't drink that. So I can't go there. And so the smart breweries that we're seeing now are making sure that they in-house have all the things that they can offer, right? So craft sodas and sparkling waters, some non-alcoholic stuff, and then, you know, a variety of beers. And in some cases, like, you know, most, they're not any down here in Georgia, but like if they can serve wine, if they can serve other things, you know, it, it's interesting to, to try and have that. So I would tell you that what I want to see in a business plan right now is less specialization and more generalization. I want, like, you can be really awesome. And if you're going to sell 750 mLs of sours, you're going to make a lot of money on that. Uh, but hopefully that's not, what you're expecting to keep your lights on um, because that may or may not be successful. So 
that was kind of a roundabout way of saying, no, I don't think I would want to do that one. I think I would want to see a lot more variety. And for the most part, I, I feel lucky to see that's what that's what we're seeing is we're seeing people who are trying to be more, they may be the best IPA maker, but they want to be a lot more broad. So they're, you know, I think I think most brewery owners are now figuring out that they have to be able to serve a larger population than a very specialized group, right, of sour drinkers or hazy IPAs or juicy IPAs or barrel-aged stouts. You know, you got to have more than that uh, to be able to keep the lights on. Yeah, well, you, you were right. You win the prize on this one. That that business plan did not make money for like a decade, and then I finally sold it. <laughs> so uh, it's... <laughs> oh, that was you? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. It would have been a bad one to invest in. So I, I, I completely agree with you, and I think that that for me was one of the reasons that I ended up wanting to sell. Is I just, I it was clear to me that there was no long term viability in the niche product, and that I personally, artistically, was not interested in being every man's beer like that. I just in, in 2011, if you had said, "Hey, dude, the only way you can make money is you got to make," I don't, I don't want to shit on. I'm not trying to say that, but like low to points of differentiation beer, like simple light pilsners type thing. I was like, that's cool. I'll just go be- invest in real estate in that point. I just, I'm not interested. So I had to get out, but it was still fun. I don't regret the time I spent in the industry, but so let's talk about red flags. So you gave me an example of stuff that you like, that you want to see, that you know is going to be sort of things that people are always going to do well. But what about like when you first see a business plan and you look at it and you're like, oh, Whatever else comes next, the fact that you even put that in there means you do not get it. You did mention one earlier, but anything else, like especially with expansions, I guess is a good one. Way overbuilt yeah. or whatever. Yeah, I, I think I think understanding. So this this is going to blow your mind and maybe blow everyone else's mind, right? So I'm a little bit debt averse, especially in looking at this, right? So uh, you know, I want to be really clear, right? I am not trying to give people a bigger loan than I think they need, right? So like. You know, that, that's one thing that, you know, I want to make sure is like, I want to try and keep you small and nimble and, and things like that. It, it's been very hard to do that with construction prices and equipment, yeah. you know, shipping and all that. So projects have ballooned um, over the last couple of years. But what I want to understand and, you know, I talk to people about it all the time is like, what's a, what's a necessity, right? So like, you're not going to build a brewery and not drop shrimp trades, right? But what is a like to have? So the marble bar versus like the wood cool like bar, we make some more money, we can upgrade it. Like what, what, what does that look like? So, you know, for me, I think right now it's pretty hard to swallow a really, really big loan, right? So SBA will let you go up to 5 million. Um, but if someone came to me and said, Hey, I want to do a three and a half million dollar startup, it would really, really terrify me, right? So, you know, that, that's something that, you know, I, I think would, would be a little scary is, you're trying to understand the runway that you have to get to, to hit some of those places. And then I think if, if someone came to me, you know, and, you know, if they were expanding and again, they were going in that hundred barrel brew house, 200 barrel brew house. I want to make sure like we really got this locked in. Like, why are you, what makes you indicate that you're going to continue to have this runway? Because there's nothing worse than having open production capacity and not have the revenue. I think, you know, being, being overbuilt project I had, I, I had a, I had a startup um, that came to me and the project was originally going to be actually had multiple. So this is, this is one of many, but this one came in and originally started as a $1.4 million project. I'm like, all right, they, they were going to do ground up. We're going to own the real estate. All that kind of I said, Hey, this is, and when we got done with it, they said, Hey, it's going to be 2.8. I said, okay, why? And it's had to do with construction, had to do everything. So I understood the logic of it. I said, all right, what does that do to your projections? So well, it doesn't change it. <laughs> so well, now you, you don't make enough money now, right? Like you, you now have another million four in debt and, and it doesn't make sense because you don't actually have the revenue to do that. So 
one or two things has to go. Either you got to figure out how to make more revenue because the project went up, or you got to get the space back down to where it was originally because that's where you're gonna that's where you're gonna actually make. So that that's a disconnect that I think sometimes we have is you know we just say oh man the project went up I got to roll up with it and so you got to understand that when the project goes up it creates other issues like now I have to make more money to make that payment back because it changes you know a lot of these things we're seeing in the industry right now don't change the price of your beer right so you you don't just because your project went from 1.4 to 2.8 didn't change your five dollar beer to a ten dollar beer it just didn't um you know it's still a five dollar beer and so you know how do you how do you handle that so that's that's been a big thing that has been kind of a red flag for me is it's not even a self-inflicted red flag, right? It's not like these breweries are trying to do it, but they're just, the market is, I think, putting some red flags in. And it's been really interesting to watch some of these breweries that I've been staying, we talked about earlier about people staying in touch with me for a while. Uh-huh. And I'll touch base with some of these people, you know, a couple times a year. And it's been interesting to see, you know, with raising rates, a little bit of inflation talk, all this kind of stuff. We've had, I've had a bunch of guys take themselves out of the running. They just said, Hey, 18 months ago, this was a great idea. Today it's not, you know, let's talk in a year and see where it is. And so it's, you know, there, there is again, my, my ray of sunshine is that we have some people that are being self aware and realizing that today's not the day. It could have been before and it could be future. I think that's a, that's a win for me. I, I just think because yeah. I think the opportunity will come up and, and they're smart. They're ready to pounce, but they know why. And that's the guy that's going to win. And I think, uh, you know, we, we've talked about it throughout. The other red flag is, I don't know if it's a red flag, it's waving red flags and green flags to me is, you know, the person who says, I'm going to own my block right now, right? I, I Texas is very similar to Atlanta, right? So you can drive four miles in some places and it could take you 40 minutes to go four miles. Mm-hmm. In other places in the state, it can you can make four miles in four minutes. So it's interesting to say, hey, look, sometimes it's being aware of, Hey, I don't have to be everywhere because uh, I can be close to other breweries and build off of their success, or I can be in my little corner. But if someone came to me and said, Hey, I'm going to, you know, have a, a distribution agreement uh, and I'm going to take all the Southeast, you know, in year one, I, I had somebody uh, the other day, you know, some people are, are going to sell a thousand barrels in year one, but others aren't. And I, you know, I kind of came up with someone the other day. I said, how'd you come up with you're going to sell a thousand barrels? He's like, well, I don't know. And I'm like, that's a red flag. And I was like, well, that's sounded good, right? And so my favorite, my favorite is I ask other brewers, right? And I'm like, for the most part, other brewers are nice, but sometimes they don't know, right? Like, you know, George is a great example. Prior to 2018, you had to build a monster brewery because you couldn't sell beer directly to the public. Uh-huh. You could only distribute it. And then there was a tour and tasting model, right? So you, you couldn't build a small five barrel system. So if you go and talk to one of those guys and say, well, what'd you sell in your first year? They're like, well, we sold 3,000 barrels. Yeah, they had to because it was all going packaging and going, you know, they were trying to get as much out in distribution as they could. And those same guys, I think, would tell you today, like, I'd much rather have sold 300 barrels on my five barrel brew house, you know, and made more money. So, you know, you, you got you to know who you're talking to and you know, just kind of understand why I'm doing it, right? Because a red flag can turn into a yellow flag if you can explain it. It's a red flag and it's, you can't explain it. Well, so I'm curious your opinion that more and more I've seen and heard around the industry that the leases are killing people now. And so what, what ends up happening is typically you'll negotiate a three to five year lease. And if, you're, if you've got a decent broker, you'll have two extensions and then maybe a third one that's extension, but it's at a fair market value. And at that point, you just basically get your ass kicked. So I'm curious on the startup side, what do you look at that? Do you even on the expansion, really? Like, do you look at that as a 
unknown cliff? Do you try to get someone to negotiate further than that? Like, what do you do on the rental? So this makes this makes me chuckle, right? Because here, here's here's a terrifying story that I would tell you. That fortunately, they were smart enough not to do this. But we had, we had a brewery looking at the lease. It still makes me chuckle to think about it. They they said, "Hey, we'll give you a two year lease." We got like, "Why two years?" And he said, "Well, because this building's really run down. I figure you can improve it." And then I can charge a lot more rent for the next guy after I throw you off. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds like a genius plan. So they were very smart to say, yeah, we'll see you later. Uh, but the way it works, if you're borrowing money, we want to make sure that you as the brewery control your lease up till the loan expires, right? So up to 10 years. So what sense. we want to see traditionally is you negotiate, um, you know, it can be 10 one-year leases. It can be a... a five year and then a three and a two, it can be a five, five, five. What, what I will, what I will know is because you've negotiated already, I know what your first five years lease is and then I should know what your two extensions are. So I kind of have an idea and I can test that theory and be able to understand that. So, you know, you, it's, it's not getting you in less trouble, but having, you know, the loan put some guardrails around the fact that you have to negotiate a lease for at least the 10 years. Um, now you can, it's, it's options. So you can down the road say, Hey, I don't, I don't want to be here anymore. And that's fine, but we don't want the landlord being able to say, Hey, I'm going to kick you out or I'm going to be able to astronomically raise your rent. Like we want that kind of spell out. The leases are tough, right? And, you know, it goes back to identifying who you are. Um, because, you know, a lot of breweries for a really long time were in the back of industrial parks, right? Like, could you, could you get a tractor trailer to them and get the beer out? And, you know, I really wasn't worried about the, user experience. But as we've continued to change, a lot more are on Main Street, right? They're in the downtown area. They're on the you know historic square. You know, they're they're in the bottom of an apartment complex. Like we we have some down here that are like there are there's a small brewery in the first floor of the apartment complex. Like, you know, it's it's kind of changed. And so it depends on the lease should definitely depend on what you're doing, right? If you want to be big and bad and 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 brewing, you know, a bunch of massive beer going out in distribution, get some cheap warehouse. If you want to sell eight, nine, ten, twelve dollar pints to the local wealthy people in the two million dollar condo, then be on the bottom of that condo. And so just kind of understanding who you are and what you're going to do is going to be important. So we we talked about how the distro model isn't really working. So we're not going to beat that one up. But I do want to go into detail a little bit with the brew pub side. Do you look in detail about whether the owner has any idea how to run the food? One of the questions I have for this is that I'm just seeing more and more that like there's just they they rarely both hit. Like I went to a brew pub last Friday and the food was pretty decent, but the beers were all four out of ten, which isn't gross and nothing was made wrong. It just wasn't great beer. The food was good enough that I didn't give a shit. But if the both had been amazing, they wouldn't have had enough seats. But they, would, they didn't have a lot of seats. But had they both been amazing, they'd have been in trouble on that side. But so we're talking to a beer podcast, right? But how much look do you look at the food? How much do you care about the menu? Yeah. So I have not mentioned many names, uh, but I'm going to mention names on this one, right? So I think in Georgia, I, I think, man, we are we are so blessed with the group. We have some very, very good, right? So I would tell you that. One that's near and dear to my heart, that's close up to my house, is Cherry Street Brewing. Amazing beer program. They do a lot of really good stuff. Barrel Age, they do really, it's just excellent, right? And then they have a food program that's really, really good. The two children of a restaurateur are who own it, right? So the that son helps, yeah. had run, yeah, had, had run the, the beer program for dad for a while. The daughter had gone out and, and done a couple of things in the restaurant industry. And so they said, Hey, look, 
we're kind of the next generation of the family business. He had worked out in Colorado. I think, and now I may get this wrong, but I think he worked for New Belgium and, and some of those kind of guys. And like, he came back and he just brought this super strong thing. And those guys are absolutely crushing it. Fan favorite and kind of North Georgia, right? And then we're, we're also blessed with like New Realm. New Realm's down here. They've got an awesome facility. The beer's super great. The food's super great. They're right on what's the Atlanta Beltline. It's the old railroad that used to go through. They turned in like a greenway. So it's got, it's a huge facility and, and you kind of go from there. So I use those as my standards of brew pubs. I less the guys who, you know, are like, Hey, this is a brew pub. We've got pizza pockets and pretzels and stuff like that. And you're like, no, 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 this isn't what we're, we're talking about. Right. So I think the brew pubs can be very well. Um, but I do think it is important to, and personally, I want to know who's got the expertise to run the food. Who's got the expertise to run the beer? Because you have to be able to do both very successfully. That's my opinion. I think I think it's if you're going to be a brew pub and you're going to call yourself a brew pub, you better have great food. And, you, and a lot of times you've got to have unique food, right? So we've we've seen a lot where they're like, this is the style of food we're going to have, this is the style of beer we're going to have, and they match and they go together. And I think that's important too, where you're not saying, hey, we're going to do fine dining. You know, and I'm being really extreme. We're going to do fine dining brew pubs. But we're going to do the $1 Pilsners to go with it, right? Like right. that just is a, is a disconnect, right? So like, how do you, how do you have a plan and how does it mold together? Like if you're going to do the, you know, the, be the burgers and fries brew pub, then you can go get away with those light American lagers and, and things like that, right? And so, you know, understanding we, we've seen a lot that are more specialized, right? So like they do tacos and burritos and stuff like that. And they're doing a lot more like Mexican lagers and, you know, the, the gozas and the kind of stuff that goes along with that. So I think it's important to kind of have a plan that, that goes together. I personally think brew pubs are a great model. And here's why. Um, because, you know, you've got the food component, if you're doing it right, right? So you turn, you turn it on on day one and you've automatically got food revenue and you've automatically got beer revenue coming in. And if you're doing it right and you're just, you've got a little distribution. Some of these brew pubs are very big and they're doing mass cans and everything like that. If you're just you know trying to get on tap at a couple other places, that's just an advertisement to come to your spot, right? So being able to put that together, and a lot of the brew pubs also have a huge advantage over the breweries, the fact that they can get liquor license, right? And so yeah. that's that is a huge advantage too. You know, they can serve wine and liquor and you know sodas, and they're making three bucks on a coke. Uh, and so you know we talk about margins. I know you want to talk about margins. You know if you can start selling you know a couple cokes to the kids, a couple beers to the parents. You know, and then you got some some good food margins. Uh, you can you can be pretty successful and make a, a pretty good living operating brew pub. So, just to back up a little bit, you mentioned that you wanted to see who was going to make the food. So, if someone is looking for a, because again, we're here to figure out how to get all of your money. So, if someone's looking for a loan from you and they're a beer person who's been in the beer industry, what do you want to see? A resume of the person they're going to hire that's going to run the food side of the business? Or do you want to see another owner that's involved? Like, what does that look for for you? I personally would much rather have an owner that is over there, right? So it doesn't have to be that this person's, you know, a Michelin star chef, right? But you have an owner that's actually run a restaurant, right? So like a front of house manager or a back of house manager that kind of understands that, you know, just like anything else, you're going to hire the right talent. But I would like for it to be, you know, my my biggest worry, and you will hear it over and over when I talk to someone, is I don't want you standing there with their hand out going, I don't know what to do next, when that key employee just leaves, right? So I need someone who knows enough that can limp you through until you make the next hire. So if they've got ownership, great. If it's your second cousin who can who can back it up, 
um, but they're not going to have ownership that they like you and they're not going to you know leave you. You know, we can work with that too. But ideally, I'd like for them to have you know some some skin in the game. I, it, there's two different types of investors in your in your business. There's ones that bring the money. And there's ones that bring the expertise. And I think that they're equally important. If you just have a bunch of money people and you don't know what you're doing, it's trouble. And if you just have a bunch of people with experts with no money, that's trouble too. So you got to have a good balance of people who have money will kind of keep their hands out of it. And then uh, other people who may not be uber wealthy, but really know how to get the job done. Uh, and that, that's a really good marriage. So in the next segment, I'm going to go a little more in detail as to why you think the root pub model is the one that's going to work. And I'm going to do my best to successfully disagree with you. But before we take a quick break, drop me one piece of knowledge. Like, What do you think, if you had to pick one, what is the single most important thing that I need to consider if I want to make actual money in this industry? Just one. You can only say one. Be able to know your margins. It's the most important thing to understand is what you can sell a beer for, what the cost of goods cost. That is including your labor and being able to include everything that goes into that and making sure that you're brewing beer that makes you money. All right. There you have it. Straight from the mouth of our expert. All right. We'll be right back. Are you still paying shipping for your brewery's ingredients? That's really, really dumb considering that Brewery Direct offers free shipping on every single order. But maybe that'll work out for you. I mean, Donald Trump got elected president. Paula Abdul and Justin Bieber both had singing careers. Shaq managed to play ball real good, and Paris Hilton ended up not losing all of her family's money. But if you don't want to risk it, I'd call Brewery Direct. They've got a diverse selection of malted and unmalted grains, aseptic fruit purees, yeast, and even hops. And if you brew with adjuncts, they've got you covered on that front too. What they don't do is charge you to ship it because they don't suck. Now serving 12 states and even Canada, your brewery needs Brewery Direct. So go check them out online at brewerydirect.com or at brewerydirect at whatever social media whose algorithm you let control your habits. All right. Thanks for sticking with us. Now we have the last and final segment. And I just want to really get your opinion from your perspective. Since I don't have a lot of lender friends, I don't get to chit chat about the industry with people who have your perspective. So I'm just really curious kind of what you see and what you think. And I think you have a unique perspective. You have, from what I can tell from your website, $75 million in outstanding loans to breweries. And my way off is like $300 million or something like that. No, no, you're, you're in the ballpark. Okay, cool. So we add breweries every month. And somehow throughout every logical reason, we still continue to do that. So that's putting your existing borrowers in a tighter and tighter spot as the competition comes in. I'm just curious you know, A, does it worry you? And B, are there kind of steps the bank is taking to shore those loans up to make sure that those guys are still successful? Yeah, so it's it's very interesting as you approach this step, right? It's when you look at it, because we've got, we've got customers all across the country. Right? So we've got, we, we have a brewery from coast to coast and everywhere in between. And so again, going back to talking about the business models that we're seeing, they're a lot more hyper-local. And I, I think that's what, is continuing to make me feel good about the industry. I know I listened to one of your last ones and someone was saying 7,000 breweries was the right number and we're at 9,000. That, that worries me if we're going to lose 2,000. But I, I think, I personally think there's room to grow. And I, I'll use Georgia as an example, right? In, in 2018, there was half of the breweries that there are now. Um, so there's, you know, I think we're at about 130-ish breweries. But right now, from my house, it's a 20-minute drive to a brewery either way, east or west, and it's about a 40-minute drive if I go north or south, right? So you could put a brewery in my neighborhood, and they would be able to kind of serve the immediate area. And so the reason I think that is good is because that's the kind of stuff that we're seeing. I am seeing a lot more three-barrel requests 
to go into kind of a small neighborhood kind of space, tap room focused, little distribution than I am seeing someone who wants to distribute. So I guess the way I look at it is my Georgia clients are not affecting my Alabama clients. We're not affecting my Tennessee clients. We're not affecting my Kentucky. You know, I, I do think that there are some oversaturated pockets within the country, you know, but I also think that there are some really wide spaces. And if you are finding those wide spaces, which it seems like a lot of people are doing, like we're, we're talking to one, you know, in the Northeast and they're like, we're, we're literally going to be the only brewery within like a 15 mile radius. And there's a million people. Who are like, All right. That seems like a good spot. Right. So, you know, being able to kind of understand, I think, Everyone's got to be a little bit smarter about where we go. And we need participation from everyone to say, okay, let's not, you can have some complementary breweries, uh, but we can't have oversaturation on the distribution side, right? There, there's a place in Atlanta where in, in the facility, there is a distillery, two breweries, and a brew pub that all share the same parking lot. Huh. And the place absolutely crushes it because people go and they do their own little mini bar crawl and they go and like have dinner and then have a beer and then have a beer and then do it. And then they, then the Uber comes and picks them up. One, one, one Uber so, ride. Yeah, you're good. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, hey, we, we just able to knock it out. So I think, you know, it, it's, it goes back to the, you know, are we competition or are we complementary? And I think that if you are trying to focus on being your best self and being your best beer within your four walls, that there's a lot of capability to be complementary and to be able to do it. I mean, I think Asheville is a great example of that, right? Like you can walk from one and to the next and to the next and to the next. And like, you know, there's, I don't know the number, I should know this, but there's probably 20 breweries in the downtown area. They're all a couple blocks from each other. And so, you know, you just kind of go down and say, hey, where do you want to go, right? It makes it a lot easier to just drop in. I personally think there's more space for the right breweries, right? So we were talking about brew pubs. I think brew pubs are good because they're they're community driven. You know, it's the place where the kids are going to eat, where you're going to eat. Hopefully they're putting good beer together. And I think the small tap rooms, plenty of room for that. And so if we can stick with those models, I think there's, there's plenty of upside left. Yeah. So in that sense, I would agree with you. So like there's a buddy of mine, Travis, who just opened up here in Texas, maybe an hour, probably about an hour from Houston on I-10 in a fairly small town, but literally zero competition. And so he's sort of like, he's also on your side. So he like, he loves to argue with me and disagree with me. And I think it's fantastic. He read the book and like reached out anyways, but He's right because everything I've said doesn't exist in that situation. And you put a kick-ass little brew pub that can actually make a great lager downtown. And it's not that rural of Texas, but in a way it is. And he just has the right model. He's got food. He's got space to sit. Again, no competition. And it's got to be at least 20 minutes, maybe 25. But those markets are getting harder and harder to find. If you put it across the street from somebody else who does it better than you, you're in deep shit. <laughs> We kind of talked a little bit about sort of like the industry overall, but from like, just give me, I'll give you an example. From 2000 now, beer as a market share has declined from 60% to 45% in the sense that wine and spirits are both kind of growing while we are losing market share. What do you think that says about the future of the craft beer? I'm curious. We as beer drinkers should bring more. Is that is that the answer? No, I, I think we're going to have to be smart about stuff, right? And so again, there was a lot of volume. You, you see the BA sales numbers and where, you know, it comes from and, you know, all those pieces. And I, and I think that the overall industry, I think, will have to be smarter about what it is. But, you know, you go back to earlier when I was talking about where you've got breweries that are making cider, making seltzer, making distilled spirits. Just because you are drinking something other than beer doesn't mean that breweries can't benefit. Right. So you've got to have the model. You've got to have some of the things that will help you weather changing pace, right? Because I think seltzer is a good example. 
the seltzers were off the charts and now you're starting to see them fall back down to an earthly model. What are those people drinking now? You know, I think it's also seasonal. Uh, so you, know, you don't you don't see a lot of people drinking seltzers in November, right? They're snugging up with a warm, you know, barrel-aged stout at that point in time. And you're not seeing that heavy barrel-aged stout at the pool, right? And so I think when, when we look at it, what we've got to do is we've got to predict the trends, be able to reduce risk, right? Because that's what that's what banking is, is, is trying to manage risk. Um, and that's the same thing that breweries are going to have to do is how do, how do they manage risk? So maybe that is adding another product line. You know, maybe it's not being an all sour brewery. doesn't want to. Definitely don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of understanding, you know, what you want to do with that. So, I mean, I think we're going to have trends where, you know, you're going to have up and down. It's something where, you know, I think breweries are going to have to, okay, so I'm going to say something that I don't know that's going to go over very well. A lot of the brewers in the brewing industry are the most talented, ingenious people I know. Right. And so, when, when you look at that, I think they have a distinct advantage over everything else. So, you know, does that, do they come up with some unique way to age a whiskey or do something to make that the next hot thing? And so we weren't talking about seltzers five years ago, right? Six years ago, you know, 10 years ago, I don't think anyone knew what a seltzer was, but it came to alcohol, right? And so, you know, we were back drinking Zima, you know, in the 90s. And so, with Jolly Ranchers, you know, in the- it's, yeah, Jolly Ranchers in the Zima. And so, <laughs> Uh, you know, it's it's something where the trends are going to change. And as long as you're nimble, this goes back to me not being over leveraged. As, as long as you're not over leveraged, you, you know, you can find the right niche and say, hey, we're going to adjust as the market. So along those lines, I'm curious what your thoughts are on kind of the innovation side. So in like the early 2010s, we had 1,500 breweries. And that's when hazy IPAs were just really starting to make their thing, kind of climb to the top of the mountain and really just pushed everybody out as this was the style, right? And now there's 9,500 breweries. And I can't point to something I would think is significant innovation. I Obviously, you mentioned seltzers. I don't really count that as innovation because it, it, I think we all know it's a flash in the pan. Like, it's not necessarily going away, but it's not. It isn't, it isn't going to be like a hazy IPA for the beer drinker. I think that's a substitute for the people who weren't really beer fans anyways. But what, what do you think has been innovation? Cold IPA, brewed IPA, session IPA, gluten-free? What, like, what? Is there something that you're like, no, 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 Kelly, you're completely wrong. We've had a bunch of innovation in the last five years. It's, it's always been a return. You, you remember like when they talk about fashion where, you know, every 30 years it goes back to where it is. And so what we wore in the 80s and 90s and where we've been in the 2030s, I, I guess, is where it is. I think that's the same thing that we're seeing in brewing industry is you're starting to see a return back to what was cool before and it's not an innovation, but it's, I think, better execution of what there was before, right? So in Atlanta, there's a very huge Pilsner Lager brewery that is just garnering this cult following. And they're doing things like the European way. And I know earlier you guys, one of your guests was anti-European beer. But, you know, these guys are doing, like, I've learned a lot about that, about like the milk of pour and, you know, the different types of pour and understanding that and Originally, I'm like, why would you want to drink a foamy beer? I'm like, no, 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 that's not how it works. It's specially, and it's kind of like a, I was like, okay. So, you know, for me, I think part of it is educating, like, what there was. I personally, and we've talked about this, do like the super funky beer. So I like the fact that when we put Skittles or we put, you know, candy cereal in a beer, I don't know why I have this weird taste bud because I do love the very clean stuff, and I love the really funky stuff. But I, I love, you know, what, what we're doing you know, I think it's not a new innovation, but I, I do love some of the way we're, you know, treating and aging stouts and, you know, the barrel-aged portion of it and how we're picking those kind of things up, give them a lot more complexity. For me, it may not be innovation, but it's something unique. 
so, you know, I, I guess the, the hard part is uh, I'm not that creative of a person. That's why I'm a banker. Uh, so I'm not sure that there's not some cool innovation in someone's brew house right now um, that we'll see. Uh, and I'm just excited to try it. So when, when something innovative comes, I'll try it and I'll let you know when it's innovative. Well, I would love to agree with you that uh, some of the innovation is that we've finally grown up as an industry to the point that we can excel at some of those clean beers and the lagers and the unique European styles. And I think that's true. My concern is, well, maybe it's not a concern. I fucking hate most of the untapped people anyways. But, but my, my, my feeling is that the market no longer will support that at large. And you're just getting like the people that want to line up for things. They're just, they're not good beer. They're just hypey crap and like... Now there's a brewery in Fort Worth that is just did a uh, barbecue sauce flavored beer. Come on, dude! Like you're just gave you gave up trying. And they they actually aren't a bad brewery. They could probably make a good lager. They just aren't because that's not what sells. They're, they're a marketing company. They know. We'll see. But so in your career, what do you think is the biggest challenge that you overcame? I think one of the biggest challenges that I ever had was I inherited a I inherited a team back when I was in, a, in managing a retail bank. It was the lowest performing team in the company at the time and through working together um, and a lot of buy-in from our team, we ended up turning around to be the top, like it, when the school board came out the next year, we were actually the top team. And so uh, it, it had, it had very little to do with me of motivating some people um, to work as hard as they could to make things happen. And so for me, it was, it was, it was great because, you know, when I got into that team, they didn't, they, they thought they were the worst place team. Right. And so it was really, the challenge was, changing their mindset to make them understand that they could be winners. And when we did that, we changed our mindset and came in every day thinking, how do we get first? It just naturally started happening and, and people were really making an effort to be successful. So I say that's a huge personal success and challenge that we... How do you think that made you better in your uh, brewery lending career? It made me worry less about when things aren't going your way. It, like right now it's tough, right? Like construction, construction is taking forever. It's really expensive. You know, people are getting a little discouraged. And so it's, you know, important to kind of say, Hey, this is, this is temporary, right? Like that, that's one of my phrases now is like, let's not try and find a permanent solution to a temporary problem. And so right now this is just a temporary thing. And so maybe it's slowing down, you know, what you're doing putting off that uh, you know, expansion for 30 days or 90 days or 120 days. And, you know, just being, you know, for me, it's giving advice to people who say, well, if we don't do this, this is going to be catastrophic and being able to point out the ways they can be successful. So you mentioned earlier, one of my favorite questions that I'd ask somebody else, you know, I can get out of not asking you. So currently have somewhere around 9,500 breweries in the United States. How many do you think is too many? <laughs> and this, I wish I had more data on this. But I would say... Oh, no, no, no. This is not scientific at all. This is completely... Oh, this is not scientific. This is what okay. my dad would call a swag, a scientific wild-ass guess. That's about us. That's all I'm asking. Okay. So I think if we do it right and we keep them small... So I'm, I'm putting some asterisks around this. this is a, these are Barry Bonds-type asterisks. You know, if we keep them, keep it small, you know, be pretty smart about it. I mean, I think... I personally think there's room for another 1,800 to 2,000. So I think we can get to 11,500. Okay. So at our current growth rate... We would expect that to happen in the next 18, 24 months, probably. What do you think happens then? Just expand. You just don't know no new brand. You know, I think you're going to always have it. Like, eventually what will happen, I think, is that we will start seeing more acquisitions in the market, right? And I'm not talking about inbound. I'm talking about I'm Brewery A, and I want to get bigger, and you're Brewery B, and I kind of like what you're doing. I like your tap room. Let's either merge or let me buy you out. 
And so I think we'll see that. So I do think we'll see some consolidation, uh, but I think we'll see a lot of open consolidation um, is what my expectation is once we kind of hit that point. Because, you know, you, you're seeing a lot of breweries with these hub and spoke kind of models, like a big production facility feeding smaller ones. So mm-hmm. I think once you do that, you'll start seeing people want to, to have some tap rooms that other people have and they're, hey, this is a cool mainstream location. Let's, let us buy it and let us, you know, do that. So I think we'll see some consolidation. So I think we'll see that that kind of go up. And I think we'll see some healthy acquisitions and some mergers and some, you know, consolidation among the craft industry. Yeah, I think that would actually be healthy. So obviously AB buying more people is not. That's going to, they do different things with it. But just some of that consolidation just gives the new company economy scale. And it's just, that's better for the industry overall. I've seen little of it here, but we've seen some, but it's not, not very much. I expect, I hope I see more. So you talked about my other favorite question. How has working in this industry affected your relationship to alcohol? And specifically, most of us have a uh, issue with ready available to not only not only beer being readily available, but the responsibility, for lack of a better word, of having to drink it at like seven in the morning to taste the tank and then having to tell yourself to stop. Like it's <laughs> so anyways, short answer. Are you an alcoholic because you're a lender like us? The thing that I learned pretty early on is there's always going to be another great beer that I'm in. It's going to be available. So there are a lot of times where, you know, I'm like, eh, I don't, I don't want one right now, you know? And so in moderation, a lot of times people say, well, don't you want one? And I'm like, well, you know, maybe I'll buy a full pack to go and over the weekend for I'll, I'll drink some beer. beer. Uh, but for me, I guess maybe the opposite. I think people think, oh my gosh, it's so available to you. You got to drink it all the time. And I'm like, it's kind of opposite. It's so available to me all the time that it's something where I can say, you know, I'll, I'll have a chance to get that. I, I know, I know the people who make it. So if they run out of the store, I can call them and say, hey, we're out of this at the store. Send me more over. It's, it's keeps, it keeps me pretty honest. And I, and I have, I have four kids at my house. Um, they're all mine. I, I don't know why I said it. So it's weird, a weird way of saying it. Yeah. Yeah. I, let me put it this way. Let me, let, so for editing purposes, I have four daughters uh, and three of them play basketball like pretty much year round. And so mainly I'm running them around and doing things other than drinking beer. Right. In my off time. Makes it hard. So speaking of off time, one of the issues I ran into at the end is, and I was obviously very angry with the industry, angry with myself and very angry with the business overall, but I ran into an issue where it was frustrating to me. Uh, we talked a little bit earlier about like how the best beer doesn't always win. And so like the ones you'll see at the market, at the store that are doing the volume, getting the attention, a lot of times are kind of crappy beers and just aren't like something that you'd be proud of. And so it used to really bother me and it would affect my relationship to just being able to sit down and have a beer. And I think if I didn't say it on a previous episode, I, I probably should have, but I, I had a beer during my daughter was playing soccer two months ago, maybe. I had a beer to brew that I knew wasn't good and it wasn't going to be good and it wasn't good and I didn't care for the first time since I had sold the brewery and it was it was great so my question is to you what advice do you have for me to, to stay in that point where I don't give a shit that people who don't deserve to win are winning in this industry and I technically lost I guess you could say so here, here's my here's my thing that I think always chuckles right so I always people have that same thing when, when people see a canned beer and they're like oh my gosh those guys must be millionaires. I kind of chuckle and I say that can on the shelf is a very expensive billboard. So they don't make very much money on it. And just because they're there does not mean they're millionaires at all, right? It's a, it's the hardest place to be. It's the most competitive place to be. But that, that does not necessarily mean success that they're in the package store or the local grocery store. I was talking to a brewer one time and he says, no one should ever have to drink bad beer. He said, but especially people in the industry shouldn't have to drink bad beer. He goes, I shouldn't have to drink bad beer and you shouldn't have to drink bad beer. So 
Kelly, my advice to you is if the beer's bad, pour it out. You know that there's another beer around the corner that if that's uh, what you want, it's, you know, there. And, you know, it's, it's something that I've kind of take the heart is like, if the beer tastes bad, I just say, Hey, that was fun. I'm not going to buy that again. And, you know, move on. And, and, and I've had plenty of those. I joked one time I was at a beer festival and there was a beer that I literally had to spit out. And I was just like, that's a problem. Right. But for me, it's just making sure that I know, cause I think you asked like, do you still enjoy it? Like what, you know, I know you earlier about like overanalyzing it. And for me, if it just doesn't taste like I like it, I'm not going to overanalyze it. I'm just going to pour it out. And so that's, the biggest thing and find you find the guys that you like and you find the, the beers that you like and you drink that and don't worry about all those. That sounds like good advice. I have been doing a little bit. There's there's one brewery, Live Oak Pilsner in here in, in Austin makes a, just a fantastic pills and that almost never isn't in my fridge, which is a double negative and I don't care, but it uh, I almost always have it. So um, I'll take I'll take your advice. So I've only got two questions for you and then I'm gonna let you go. So uh, who do you think is more of an asshole, me or you? I, th- I think I know the answer to this one. Go ahead. So you don't know the answer, because are you ready? I yeah. think we're both genuinely awesome guys, and here's why. From two different approaches, you are trying to use your industry experience to prevent other people from hitting a roadblock, and I'm doing the same thing on my side, right? I'm trying to say, hey, this won't work. There is a perception that when you tell someone that they're not doing what they should be or they're going to be unsuccessful at it, that they don't like what you have to say. And so you just have to kind of brush that off, say that, I'm doing the best thing for you. I'm doing the best thing for me. And uh, so I think we're both really good guys. All right. Well, I'm willing to take that as an answer. I like it. Well, tell us, uh, tell everybody how to find you. So obviously you're the most important brewery lender in the country and they need to find your, figure out how to find you. I will link this stuff in the show notes, obviously, but uh, what's the best way to get in touch with you? So I'm on LinkedIn. Um, pretty easy to find me there. I'm on Facebook. I even edited my name on Facebook to say Jason Sleeman Brewery Lender. So I'm very easy. It's hard to not find me on Facebook. You know, we've got our own landing page for the bank. So United Community Bank Craft Beverage Lending Group is out on the web. If you just Google that, you'll find us there. Then, you know, that'll show you my email or whatever you want to do. So I'm so I'm, I'm available. For some reason, I'm not on Instagram or Twitter or anything like that. That just seems like a lot to keep up with. And so you can't find me there. Good. Screw Twitter. That's like the worst place ever. Don't go there. All right. Well, I appreciate uh, you sharing everything today. Uh, and like I alluded to in the beginning, I had hoped, but I didn't know. But I was very curious and very excited to have seen your perspective and how it's it's somewhat different than mine, but in the same way, like, you know, seen many of the same things. So uh, I think you've offered some great advice and I hope everybody listens to it. So thanks again. Awesome. Thank you. Hey guys, I want to thank you for sticking around. I appreciate you spending time with my guests tonight today. A couple of housekeeping things. I want to remind you that my book is available on Amazon, both on Kindle and in the paperback. And you'll see probably about another month, there'll be an audiobook. So if you don't like to read and for some reason you're burdened with loving to listen to my voice, you will get more of that um, in that audiobook. But again, thanks for sticking around and I look forward to the next podcast. Uh, peace out. See you soon. Replay. Media. Media.